Today we'll be reading Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Happy New Year. Happy 2023. Raise your hand if you made it till midnight last night. And you're here at church for the 9 o'clock service, the righteous remnant. (laughs) Welcome. Welcome. Well, my name is Jace Meyer. I'm the youth pastor here at Desert Breeze. And I want to take a moment real quick and welcome anyone who's watching us online right now. Special shout out. We have a few sick people that I know are watching. My friend Bonnie. Bonnie Mahoney. We love Bonnie. Yeah. Gary, Gary takes care of this place and, and makes sure it's looking beautiful every week. And finally, Pastor Ray is not feeling great, uh, but he is watching live right now. And Ray, just know, whatever I say, you asked for this. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're, you're stuck with it now. No, I'm excited to be here and excited to be wrapping up this series, The Greatest Story Ever Told a series about having a solidly founded biblical worldview, a series that that hopefully has challenged you to examine the very foundation of your faith. Because you see, everyone has a worldview. Whether we know it or not, we all have a set of answers and beliefs to life's basic questions that fuel how we live our lives each and every day. In fact, I'm going to do a quick review of some of the questions that we have asked and answered over the last several weeks. We answer, first of all, why are we here? Why are we here? Now, a biblical worldview answers this question in Genesis. We are a precious part of God's creation that has been made in His image. He spoke this world into existence. And again, the very foundation of the world was, was, was created in six days. And at each turn, it says that God looked at His creation and said that it was good. And on day six, when He created male and female, He looked at His creation and said, that this is very good. So that's why we are here. The second question is, what is the problem? What's the problem? Now, a biblical worldview would tell us that sin crept into this world through Satan. In Genesis chapter 3, we witness the fall of man, the first sin in the garden. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that, that Adam and Eve just dropped dead because, you know, God did say, if you eat of this tree, you'll surely die. No, no, it, it, They didn't die, but they might as well have gotten a death sentence 
right then and there because they were kicked out of the garden and they were then made privy to the consequences of good and evil decisions. So that is the big problem. And through that, that consequence, the death, the separation from God, that's the big problem that we're facing. So that leads us to our next question. What is the solution to be presented to that problem? And of course, that's the easy answer. That's the answer you learned in, in kindergarten, Sunday school. The answer to the, you know, the solution is Jesus. And if you were here last week for our Christmas Eve services, then you got to hear how Jesus is the greatest Christmas gift that we have ever been given. For Christmas, we received the gift of salvation. And that gift showed up in the form of a little baby who would grow up and live a perfect life. And as Pastor Ray would say, he lived the life that we were supposed to live and he died the death that we deserve to die. Because of his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, we have been redeemed. We have been saved from our sins and delivered from the consequences associated with our sin. And now this weekend, we tackle the last piece of the puzzle, the final point of this series, the ultimate question that people ask in regards to our future, where do we go from here? In a world that's as messed up as this one, what hope do we have for our future? <clears throat> now, I want you to know that I fully understand the gravity of this assignment, getting to be up here today, because you're, you're sitting out there and you are listening to the very first sermon that you're going to hear of 2023. And so I, I, I'm feeling the pressure here. In a few minutes, you're going to walk out of here saying, boy, 2023 really got started off on a high note. I'm looking forward to, I'm looking forward to the rest of the year. <laughs> There's that option, yes. Uh, the other option is you're going to walk out of here in a few minutes going, when is Pastor Ray going to get back? I hope, he, I hope he feels better real soon. Either way, you will be forced to walk away from here saying, that's the best sermon I've heard all year. So there you go. I also understand the gravity and the responsibility of teaching from the book of Revelation. Revelation, the book of the apocalypse, a book that leaves you in awe, a book that leaves you with questions, a book that makes you go, hmm, a book that makes you go, whoa, a book full of symbolism, a book full of beasts with all sorts of horns and abilities and I just want to say it's a book full of strange events, and if you're looking for a, kind of a book of bedtime stories to read to your kids, uh, don't read them chapter 8 before you turn the lights out and say goodnight. Uh, skip that one. Pick a different one. It will blow your mind. Understandably, a lot of pastors shy away from the book of Revelation. It's too deep. It's too dark. It's too scary. It's too complicated to pick apart. They choose to wait until holiday weekends when the youth pastor is preaching and say, hey, good luck. <laughs> Instead, they spend more time in books like the Gospel of John or in Romans, which that reminds me, I want to personally invite you. Next week, we're starting a new series in the book of Romans uh, that Pastor Ray will be teaching us through. Uh, <clears throat> all jokes aside, or most, most jokes aside, uh, Let's pray before we dive into the, the final point of this series, looking at our future, our hope, and our restoration. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the new year. Thank you for the rain that even comes with this new year, this, this cleansing, fresh feeling that we have as we look at 2023. God, it's an honor to 
be looking at the future that you have for us. We're so grateful that you gave uh, these series of visions to John as he was able to write this book of Revelation. And even though it is scary at times, there is a hope and a bright, bright future at the end, and we are all looking forward to it. Be with us now as we, as we learn more about you, as we learn from you. Lord, just speak through me, and let this be a, a great productive morning and a great way to start off our new year. Amen. All right, here's my thesis for our sermon today, and I, I almost wish I had Pastor Matt up here because his voice is so much more, uh, you know, intimidating than mine and his hair, too. Uh, but he reads in just this great voice, you know, since the dawn of time, humanity, no, I'm not going to do it. Since the dawn of time, humanity has spent the bulk of its time investing in the future. So much of what we do now impacts our future. A bright future represents hope, and hope is what fuels us to live life in the fullest way that God would have for us. Now, I wrote down some, some real practical and, and even some life and death instances of how we invest in our future day by day, moment by moment. First of all, every breath we take is an investment in our future. You ever thought about breathing like that? Because I did that, I've now earned the right to take another one. Every breath we take is an investment in our future. And if we cut off our oxygen intake for even a couple of minutes, we die. We start to fall apart quickly. We eat food to invest in our future. Without food, we only live for a couple of weeks. We drink water to invest in our future. Without water, we only live for a few days. Other examples that go beyond the, the normal everyday need and investment, think about this, we work hard at our jobs as an investment in our future. Hard work ensures new opportunity, ensures promotions, ensures pay raises, et cetera, et cetera. I tell students all the time, I so said, we work hard in school, we study hard in school as an investment in our future. A degree often means more doors opening, more ways of supporting yourself and even taking care of a family. We raise our children in a godly way as an investment in our future. They're the next generation of leaders and they can use all the support that we can give them. The examples go on and on. Athletes, they, they practice today for better performance tomorrow. Kindergartners, they learn their alphabet today so that tomorrow they can more fully sass their parents. That was for my therapist, that's my... I, my bad. But you get what I'm saying. We're constantly investing in our future. Now, from a secular worldview, a self-serving worldview, we accomplish these things with seemingly no end in sight. A secular worldview would take a 25-year-old fresh into a new career, and, and, and they would say, work hard for 30 years so then you can retire and you can, you can, you can earn you know, a long extended break, and, and it's, it's all worth it. But then you get to 55, and I know this is hollow because I'm only 34, but you get to 55 and you realize, okay, retirement isn't, it's not all cracked up what I, you know, what, what I thought it was going to be. It's, it's, it's actually sometimes more work. Just last weekend, I was chatting with a couple here Christmas Eve, and I said, how's, how's retirement? What are you doing? You, you traveling? You staying busy? And, and, and the couple, they looked at me, they, they told me some great stories, but finally they said, actually, being retired is exhausting. And it's, 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 it's causing more work than we ever thought it would be. 
A secular worldview of the future often is a me-centric worldview, a I-centric worldview. How can I succeed? How can I get ahead? Lots of me words, lots of I words, especially when it comes to the future. But a biblical worldview takes the me and takes the I and, and, and actually removes those words and puts the focus on Jesus Christ. A biblical worldview takes our focus away from the wishful thinking of the future that this world so often produces and says that there is a confident and joyful expectation in the person of Jesus Christ. A biblical worldview understands what John 16, 33 says, and it says this, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, and what's the end? I have overcome the world. There's an understanding that this world is going to be difficult, but Jesus says, I have overcome the world. That overcoming of the world that we read about in John 16 is on full display in the book of Revelation. Now, contrary to my attempted humor about teaching in Revelation this weekend, uh, it, would, it would actually be a disservice to you, and it would be a disservice to the book of Revelation to try to teach through the whole book in one shot. Uh, the sermon would probably end with me saying, happy 2024. Uh, we, we, would, we would be here for a long time, so I'm not going to do that. Instead, I want to give you some bullet points that lead us to our text today in chapter 21. Now, keep in mind, if you've, if you've ever heard me teach before, you, obviously you've heard Pastor Ray teach when you're putting a book into context or any passage into context, the simplest way is to ask the, the who, what, where, when, and why of the passage. So, we, excuse me, when we look at Revelation, we look at the who John is writing to the seven churches that are in Asia. We find that in chapter 1, verse 4. It's right there in front of us. Where is he writing from? He's writing from the island of Patmos because he's been exiled there by the Roman emperor Domitian. And when, the, the best guess is 96 AD because we find out that he was exiled right around 95, so it makes sense that he starts writing in 96. He's an old man at this point. And why is he writing Revelation? Well, he's writing this for people that are experiencing severe persecution at the time. He's writing again to these seven churches in Asia Minor, and, and believers within these churches are going through some of the worst persecution in history at this point. It is so bad that, that John just, I, I, I got to give him something. So he is blessed with these prophetic visions of the future so he can write to them saying, I know that it's hard, but I want to give you hope and I want to actually give you a living hope because the future is so bright compared to how hard it is right now. He's saying, yes, it's bad, but he's saying, I have seen the last scene of the movie. I've seen the last few pages of the book, and I know how it plays out. Yeah, it gets crazy. Yeah, it gets ugly, but guess what? God wins. And right after this epic victory, when Satan and his armies are cast into the lake of fire, they're doomed to forever torment, and all those whose names are not found in the book of life are also thrown into the lake of fire, a new heaven and new earth is created with all believers in mind. Our hope, our future, our restoration is coming. 
So let's dig in. I want to read the first two verses of Revelation 21. If you've got your Bibles open, read along as I read aloud. We read this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Uh, for our main points today, I had some fun this week with some alliteration, just trying to be creative to keep you tuned in. So our first point of the day is a perfect presentation of God's pure power. Yeah, three people like English. Uh, a perfect presentation of God's pure power. Now, keep in mind, John just saw the crux of the conflict between good and evil. He saw the lake of fire. He saw the torment that accompanied it. And now he sees the old earth and the old heaven pass away. And he is privileged enough to see a new heaven and a new earth. And he even gets to see the jewel of the new earth, New Jerusalem. Now, first of all, in, in, in verse 2, how, how can you not love the verbiage? That, that John chooses to go with here. He, his wording takes me back almost 11 years ago on my wedding day, and my wife is in here, uh, so she can also envision this moment. Uh, 11 years ago on my wedding day when I'm standing up there, you know, almost here uh, in a church, and the back door is open, and she comes down the aisle. And when I see her, it just seems like all the stress of, of the day and the preparation, that all melts away. All the worry about the future, that all goes away. And it's just complete and total joy being in that moment, seeing my bride come down the aisle. Now, I can only imagine what she was thinking during that time. I imagine it was something very similar. Just like, I am so lucky to be marrying this man. And she was right. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's this, this beautiful picture that John gives us of, of, of seeing a new bride that has been adorned, been just dressed up just for us. Now, keep in mind that, that <clears throat> John is he's only human. So he's choosing the wording because it's one of the best representations of beauty and happiness in this life. Imagine what the real thing will be like when we take in with our own eyes this new heaven and this new earth. Now the pure power part comes from verse 1 when John notes that the sea was no more. He definitely notes that there is you know, a passing of the old heaven and the old earth, but he goes out of his way to add in that the sea is no more. Why is that important? Now, as I talk about this, remember in your mind the last time you got to go visit the ocean, remember the last time you got to go visit the beach. For us, in a lot of ways, the sea represents beauty, it represents life. But we also know that it represents power and danger. We oftentimes think about going to the ocean for vacation purposes, for getting a tan, for swimming a bit, uh, for maybe doing some snorkeling, maybe doing some sport fishing. But keep in mind, in Bible times, the ocean, the sea, represented a livelihood for a great many people. And to make that livelihood, they would go out on these wooden boats and these handmade nets, and they would do their absolute best to, to make enough for the day to take care of their families. And oftentimes, they would have to go out and brave the open water. 
I would imagine that more men died as fishermen than any other than any other occupation, any other profession, due to bad weather, uncooperative waves, boat issues, etc. The fact that God took the sea, a symbol of danger, a symbol of constant, unpredictable change, and made it disappear is something that we can get excited about and even be hopeful for. That God wants to just remove that question mark from existence. This is not a one-time image in Scripture of a new heaven and a new earth. Be sure this week or sometime in the near future to read Isaiah 65. And I also picked out 2 Peter 3.13, which says this, but according to His promises, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. According to His promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A lot of times on this earth, we don't really feel like righteousness dwells here. We're surrounded by the exact opposite a lot of the time. So to know that our future is the dwelling place of righteousness brings us hope. As we roll into verses 3 and 4, we read this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away." Your second point is this from verses 3 and 4, a considerate creator comforting his children. A considerate creator comforting his children. If you've ever wondered, does God care about me? Is He there for me? Hopefully these verses provide some semblance of an answer for you and even some hope for you. In the future, with this hope that we have, God's dwelling place is with us. There's, there, there, there's no smoke and mirrors in this future. There's no wondering who the Wizard of Oz is. His dwelling place is with us. His presence, His essence, His very being is right with us. And in verse 4, we see that, that He's not going to be with us in this dominating way, but in a way that cares for us and doesn't want to see us in pain. We get a small taste of this as parents in life, whether you are a parent or obviously you grew up with parents. I'll be the, <laughs> I'll be the first to admit that I'm not always like the most tender, loving father, especially when my, when my kids are whining about something. I'm, I'm more of the dad when, when my kids are whining, I, I, I look at them and say, you're fine. You're going to need to put some dirt on it, and you're going to need to go back and keep playing. Like that, That's more sometimes the, the dad approach that I take. But I will say that, and, and, and all parents in here can, can relate, there is a difference between the whiny sound that a kid makes and an I'm actually injured sound that a kid makes. And you know that real quick. And anytime I hear the ouch, I'm actually hurt sound, the thing that I want to do then is wrap my kid up, whichever one it is, and say, it's okay wipe away their tears, and do whatever I can to bring healing for their pain. In our future, in our hope-filled future, in our future with a new heaven and a new earth, in our future where God's dwelling place is with us, there is no more death, 
no more mourning, no more crying, and no more pain. Here's a question. When's the, when's the last time you felt pain of any kind? Maybe for some of you, it was just a few minutes ago at the end of the worship set when you sat back down. Something, something popped. You're still wondering, is this going to be okay? Maybe it is physical for you. Maybe it's more emotional. On a more serious note, maybe this, maybe this Christmas was, was exceptionally difficult for you. Maybe it was your first Christmas since losing a loved one. And the pain and, and, and the hurt and the sorrow that comes with that was upon you. <clears throat> our future, our hope, doesn't involve that pain. It involves us being in the arms of a loving God who has wiped all the pain away. If you have some time this week, make sure you also read 1 Corinthians 15. It's a, it's a beautiful look at our future. Paul is writing about the truth of Jesus' resurrection, and, it, and, and he's writing about the, the proof that death can and has been defeated. After all, since, since Jesus was raised from the dead, He has the power and He has the authority to give us a future beyond the, the, the finite mortality of this world. Paul says that if Jesus cannot defeat death, then we're just here spinning our wheels. But since He did defeat death, we have a hope and a future in Him and with Him. Looking back at the prophetic book of Isaiah in chapter 25, which is actually titled, God Will Swallow Up Death Forever, verse 8 says this, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Our final point that I want to look at today comes from verses 5 through 7 of Revelation 21. I'll give you the point first, and then we'll read the verses. It's a heap of hope and heritage for the hurting. A heap of hope and heritage for the hurting. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers this will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Notice the present tense used here in verse chapter five, or verse chapter, verse five of chapter 21. We are now hearing the voice of God right here. This hope, this future is actually being shaped now. This confident, joyful expectation of what God has for us is actually coming together now, whether we notice it or not. I also love the reminder in here to keep writing. And this is just kind of a fun little side note as I was studying uh, this week and in the last couple weeks. There's actually uh, a suggestion here that this, this he that is mentioned here is a different he. Well, of course, we hear the voice of God in verse 5, but all of a sudden we hear, and he said, keep writing these things down for they're full of truth. It's almost like John was in awe, like, oh no, now this is the voice of God. And he is just so zoned in right here. And it's almost like an angel has to come up and just kind of poke him in the ribs and say, hey, I know this is really cool, but you got to keep writing this down. This, this is just so full of truth. Like, don't, don't get caught up in the moment. Write this down. 
could have been a second voice there. Of course, God says He is the beginning and the end. Those who come to Him are given a drink without payment. We know that the payment has already been made. We know that Jesus paid the price. And now we can come and we can take a drink now without payment. And God isn't standing there. He's not rolling His eyes as we come up and take a drink like, oh, I know what you've done. There's no begrudging attitude like, seriously, you of all people? It's not that at all. He gets to openly welcome us to come and drink of this water and this life that comes with it. Verse 7 speaks of a heritage, an inheritance. And when I hear these words in Scripture, I think of Romans chapter 8. Because Paul writes in the, right in the middle of his letter, and we'll get to, like I said, we'll get to study through the book of Romans uh, starting next week. But Paul writes right in the middle of this letter, he writes something that causes a lot of eyebrows to go up because he starts talking about adoption. He starts talking about our heritage and our inheritance of being a part of the family of God. But he says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Like I said, this caused some confusion because adoption in Bible times was not nearly as common as adoption now. And if adoption actually did happen, if a, if, a, if a child lost their parents and they didn't end up as a beggar on the streets or dead, and they were taken into a home, if that actually happened, chances are, or chances were very great, that they're not actually then going to be added to the family inheritance. It's going to be like, hey, we took you in, we fed you, we clothed you, we kept you alive. That's payment enough, but you're not actually a blood relative here. So you're not going to make it into the inheritance. So when Paul writes these words and says, we're all, we've all been adopted, we're sons, and we're actually heirs of God, heirs with Christ, there's a heritage, there's an inheritance coming for all of us. This is new, mind-blowing information that rocked the very world of Christianity and still rocks our world today. God says we are adopted, and we are treated as someone who has earned everything in the future. This is punctuated in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Our hope isn't going anywhere. It's not fading away as time passes. The promise isn't fading. There's nothing we can do to make it worse and worse. This hope is there for us, being kept in heaven for us. <clears throat> okay, alliteration aside, hope, future, and restoration are all key themes in Scripture, including, of course, the teachings of Jesus. John chapter 14, classic passage as, as Jesus is interacting with the disciples, talking about 
a future and, and even, even some of the, the confusion that the disciples experienced through that, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Now this passage goes on, and, and the disciples are, are confused. Thomas and Philip especially, they're full of all sorts of questions. And for some reason, this reminds me of, of when I'm at home with my family, and it reminds me when, when Brittany has to leave and go somewhere. Because when she leaves, that causes chaos with the children. When I leave, they don't even know that I'm gone. In fact, a lot of times I'm told that things go smoother when I'm not home. Because I'm like a fourth child in a lot of ways. But when she says she has to go somewhere, she's leaving, the kids just melt down. And just like, Mommy, where are you going? And she is so great at handling them. She looks at them and says, let not your hearts be troubled. I go to a place called Target, and it has many rooms, all of which I will buy something from, spending your father's money. I'm going to get in trouble for that one. But the disciples are confused when Jesus says, I'm going. You can't go. We don't, we don't, know, we don't know the way. Where are you going? The disciples have kind of gotten used to having Jesus around. Now he's talking about leaving. So they're understandably confused. But there's no disputing that there is hope found in these verses. Jesus is looking at his disciples, and consequently, he's looking at all who have placed their faith in him, their trust in him, their hope in him. And he's saying, I have gone to prepare a place for you, but I will come back for you so that we can be together. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Anybody out there have an exceptionally difficult 2022, just a hard year? Yeah, I'm seeing some, some nods and some, some waves. It's a tough year for a lot of people in a lot of ways. If it was, these verses are for you. Sometimes it's a great reminder for us to know that we are not made for this world. Life is hard sometimes. But the greatest moments that we experience in this world are nothing in comparison to the greatness that we will experience in God's presence. And the worst moments in this world won't even be a memory due to the perfection and joy that we will be experiencing. When you have time this week, make sure you get into Proverbs 29, specifically verse 18. It's, it's, it's worth your time to check out and read and study. My question now even a couple questions. Where are you at when it comes to your hope for the future? Does the saving power of Jesus Christ have any bearing on your life at all? 
When you close your eyes and you think about the future beyond this life, is it clouded with doubt and fear? If that's you, then at the end of this service, just a few minutes, at the end of this service, I want to invite you to come up and talk to me, talk to any available leader, any available elder, any available pastor that can be up here. If that's you and and your future brings nothing but cloudy thoughts, doubts, fears, and the unknown, then don't leave today with those same doubts, those same questions. Don't start off this new year wondering, what what does God have for me in the future? I don't know. As I wrap up this series, I want to remind you that part of the reasoning for this series was a recent Barna study came out that states that only 37% of pastors in the United States possess and teach from a biblical worldview. In fact, 62% of pastors fall prey to what's called syncretism, which is a biblical worldview mixed with personal preferences. And I think if we I think if we all broke it down, I think we could all say that from time to time, at least, we fall into that. We, of course, believe the Bible, but we sometimes have to add in our, our own opinions and our own truths, and I'll, I'll illustrate that in just a moment. But another thing that kind of rocked me was 13% of children and youth pastors hold to a biblical worldview. That is only one out of eight. So on a staff that has both Bradley and I, And this study says that only one of us could have a biblical worldview. And the fact that I have the microphone right now, let's pray for Bradley and his worldview that he too could be... No, I'm just kidding. Bradley's amazing. Some of you have asked over the last several weeks, so how do I know if I'm operating out of a biblical worldview? I agree with all the main points of the series. Is is that enough? Like I said, I have, I have an illustration that, that hopefully will, will uh, help you make a more complete evaluation. Um, brought, brought up some friends with me. First of all, what is this? Snare filter. What does it do? Yes, it filters. Bunch of Harvard graduates here, all right? I'm just kidding. That is what it does. That is what it does. We use these... Almost everywhere, almost any time you're inside, you're, you're under an air filter. Uh, for you homeowners out there, hopefully you uh, replace these at least once every couple of months. If you're a homeowner and you've never seen one of these before, you can also come talk to me after service and I'll, you'll probably be coughing as you tell me, uh, but I will, I will show you what it is. But we, we rely on these to filter out harmful particles, things like dust and allergens, and we we want to be able to breathe better knowing that we have good air filters working in our lives. Now, in a lot of ways, our biblical worldview or whatever worldview we hold to is a lot like an air filter. We walk around with a filter in front of us knowing that whatever life is going to throw at us, no matter what culture says, no matter what people say, we want everything to come through our worldview, our filter. Now, if we hold to a biblical worldview, or we say we do, then our biblical worldview, of course, is based on what the Bible tells us and what Jesus teaches us. We, we, we have all this. So, so we want to walk around life 
knowing that no matter what happens, no matter what is said, it comes through this filter, and we can filter out truth, and we know how to react, what to say, what to do according to our worldview. So this is like best case scenario here, all of us walking around and having this. Let me show you what sometimes our worldview actually looks like. And I want to say first, I, I don't say this in a legalistic way at all. I say this in a way that will hopefully cause each and every one of us, myself included, to evaluate where we're at with our worldview moving forward. So a lot of times our filter actually looks a little bit like this. We walk around saying, I have a biblical worldview. I hold to a biblical worldview worldview. I believe what the Bible says and the truth that's there, but sometimes I falter a little bit. Sometimes I get caught up in, in, in wondering what those crooked politicians are doing in Washington and how they're ruining this country and how they're ruining the world. And I don't just get caught up in it, I get preoccupied with it. And my thoughts are held captive to what's going on there. So all of a sudden, we take what God says and we put a politics-sized hole in our worldview. And now we have an issue there. There's also something going on in culture right now that says the definition of love has changed over time and that anybody can marry anybody and there's not just two genders. Anybody can, can make changes, and God even makes mistakes sometimes, so we have to uh, address this topic of sexuality. And when we get on board with any of those changes that go outside of what God has for us in the Bible, we put a sexuality-sized hole in our worldview. Sometimes we get caught up in wondering too much about what other people think of us. And we forget what God says about us. And we're so focused on the opinions of others. And when people say anything about us, it just ruins our day and seemingly ruins our whole lives. We have an identity size hole in our worldview. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes you're always wondering, what's that going to cost? Is that going to put me in debt? And that distracts you. Sometimes it's just pride. And I think we all... Me, you know, chief of sinners right here will put my own interests in front of others a whole lot. And we're left with this as our worldview. Now, <clears throat> just looking at this as an air filter, how many of you would install this in your home and feel confident about its ability to stop the harmful particles that, are, that are, you're going to be breathing in. This is going to do a really cruddy job. When we treat our biblical worldview like this, then naturally it's going to do a pretty cruddy job at filtering out everything that this world has to throw at us. Now again, I'm not saying this to make you feel bad. This is a call for an evaluation. And hopefully as you're leaving today, and going into this new year, you can ask yourself, what does my air filter look like? What does my worldview look like? And hopefully it'll cause some good uh, introspective thoughts and even some good discussion with you and your families. I would recommend spending some time with the Lord as well and asking Him for help to shore up whatever holes you may have in your worldview. Pray with me now, and then I'm going to invite Luke to come up as we have one song to close our service.
Lord, thank you so much for this time. Thank you. Thank you for the future that you have for us. Thank you for the hope that has been given to us. We get to look forward to what you have for us with that confident, joyful expectation, with that hope that you give us. Lord, sometimes this world is hard. Sometimes people mistreat us. Sometimes we feel bad about what's going on and we feel lost. But help us all to remember that we can look to you and we can look to your promises. We can look to the future that you have for us and we can be excited. We can remember that we are not made for this world, but we are made for a future and an eternity with you. We're so grateful that you have solved the problem of sin and separation and you want to be with us for all time. God, be with each and every one of us too as we leave and we, we think about our worldview and how that affects the decisions that we make. God, help us to think about our own air filters and how we can strengthen them moving into this new year. We ask for your help in this. Lord, continue to bless this church moving forward into 2023. We ask that you restore the health of those that are sick Return to us those that are out of town and traveling. Keep them safe. We're grateful for everything that you're doing here at Desert Breeze. We love you. Amen. There is a uh, song that sometimes you hear sung at New Year's Eve party or to celebrate the new year. And a couple years ago, somebody rewrote that song and it's called all glory be to christ so we're going to sing that together you can sit or stand whatever you feel like if you know the song sing along if not that's okay too should nothing of our efforts stand no legacy survive unless the Lord doth raise the house in vain. The builders strive to you who boast tomorrow's gain. Tell me what is your life amidst that vanishes at dawn? All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ, our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. day the great I am the faithful and the true the lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new behold our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light and we shall ere his people be all glory be to 
Happy New Year, everybody. Have a good week.